Welcome to the Healing Trauma Podcast, a space for those who are healing from complex and developmental trauma. Introducing your host, Monique Coven, a certified trauma recovery coach, survivor, and thriver. The intent of the podcast is to provide helpful information with insight that can validate, encourage, and support you on your healing journey. You're going to hear stories from other survivors and trauma experts, featuring therapists, coaches, and practitioners. We will open up the conversation on effective trauma healing modalities, practices, and tools. If you are interested in trauma recovery coaching, as well as recommended books and healing resources, head over to www.thehealingtraumapodcast.com. And now, here is your host, Monique Coven. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. On today's episode, I'm going to share with you a really great conversation I had with therapist Dr. Peter Salerno. And we're going to be talking specifically about how trauma can impact your body and mind and relationships when you are a first responder. I think that often when we think of trauma, we think of childhood trauma and its impact on the body and brain and relationships, or we think of one-time events. So we're going to be exploring how trauma can impact a person and their relationships, uh, specifically in the line of work with first responders. I hope you find this episode helpful. And if you know anyone who is in this line of work, you can forward them this episode, and I hope that they will find it helpful as well. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I am, as we were chatting just a little bit before, I was telling you that this is the first time I'm having a subject that's not directly related to childhood trauma. Most of the topics I've had throughout the years have been childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. But when you approached me with um, the title of your book, Fit, uh, Fit for Off-Duty, and you were talking about trauma and first responders, right away I could relate because one of our best friends is a paramedic and I watched his career and his day-to-day -day life and I saw that he really did experience trauma. Um, so I would love to get into that with you uh, talking about talking about how this type of work, this line of work, uh, first responders is, there's a lot of trauma involved in this kind mm -hmm. of work. So, um, and you're talking, let's, let's also state that you're, you're coming to this as a therapist, as a trauma specialist, a professional, mm -hmm. but you're also coming uh, in a personal way. You are the son of a, maybe I'll let you finish that. Sure. I'm the son of a fire captain. And then my older brother is also a firefighter. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess living with the experience of, first of all, growing up with a dad and seeing some of the responses and behaviors, is that what kind of got you into therapy, becoming a therapist and then having an interest in 
working with first responders? Absolutely. My dad actually became a firefighter when I was seven years old. So there was a pretty big transition in our in our family system. Um, him coming from just working nine to five and in in a in a safe environment to you know all of a sudden becoming a firefighter. And actually, when he was hired, he was uh, still on probation when he had to go to Los Angeles to um, help out with the LA riots back in 1992. So his initiation to the job was extremely traumatic and stressful. And then we were home, not really knowing, you know, the magnitude of what was going on there. So it was pretty scary. It shook up our our family uh, to have him, you know, transition into that line of work. I'm just thinking of you as... um at first the idea when he introduced himself as I'm going to be a firefighter, did you think that that was like, Oh wow, my dad's going to be so cool. He's going to be putting out, fi- I don't know. What was your little boy's mindset? Yeah. yeah I mean, little boys kind of idealize mm-hmm. firefighters as, as heroes and it, it looks really cool and, and fun even. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, one of the main draws, I think for a lot of uh, families uh, is that, their schedule allows them to be home in, in a capacity that's kind of different than people who have to work, you know, five days a week, nine to five or whatever. So it was, it was exciting that we were going to, we were thinking we were going to have a lot more time with dad and we were going to be able to go on lots of vacations and do all that kind of stuff. And uh, that sort of glamorous idealized view is kind of quickly uh, sort of, we get disillusioned pretty quickly when, when the reality of it sinks in, it's really not like that at all. Uh, so, but as a kid, it, it was, it was exciting at first. <laughs> I'll just say that. So did you notice like a noticeable difference in your dad's behavior from, I mean, you said you were seven from what mm-hmm. he was like before with the other job, the safe, predictable job versus this? I did actually. Um, I think me specifically, I, I don't think it's a coincidence. I got into this line of work. I oh. typically am uh, sort of that play that mediator role, um, very intuitive. Mm-hmm. And so I was experiencing some pretty um, subtle shifts in just the the relationship dynamic, the behaviors, mannerisms, just the overall mood, emotional climate in the house, you know, changed pretty uh, subtly, but also overtly. And I was picking up on that pretty consciously at an early age. Mm. And there's definitely like a, um, like a divide from my life before he became a firefighter to after I can pretty, it's pretty distinct in my, my mind and memory. So That's what I was wondering. Mm -hmm. So why are you focusing on like trauma and first responders specifically in your book? Why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, it's a great question. I originally was, well, I do a lot of work with first responders in my practice. So I work with law enforcement. I work with firefighters. And what I was noticing is they would come in. And I would kind of do some education on 
kind of the process of therapy, the process of uh, healing and sort of the interventions and stuff like that. And a lot of them would not come back. Um, pretty common to, for, for in, in first responder culture, not to seek out help in the first place. So just getting, getting them in the room is, is, um, quite a big deal, but I noticed a lot of them weren't coming back for a follow-up. So what I started to do is I started to kind of, uh, draft some documents that I would send home with them that were sort of informative on the process. And I noticed that they would come back for a follow-up if I had given them something solid or, you know, like a hard copy of something concrete that they could go over on their own. Mm -hmm. And as I started realizing uh, what was happening, it seemed like when they were in the office, they were perceiving threat. Mm -hmm. And so when we perceive threat, you know, our rational thinking shuts down. And so they would leave and probably not have a good reason to come back. And all they remember probably is that it was uncomfortable, even if I gave them some great information on, you know, how I could help. But when I gave them something to go home and kind of marinate on and digest when they were safe in their own environment, I noticed they would be more willing to return and do the work. And so that's sort of how the book became a thing. I just started writing it over time and handing little like pamphlets and snippets out until it became an entire, uh, an entire book that I could publish. So. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, uh, I, I did read your book and I, um, I felt that it was very, very clear and very like easy, like you kind of like what you're describing, it was digestible. And I like the way you said uh, about them coming in and, and having that threat response, especially if this is not something that they're comfortable with. You did talk about that in the book too, about this um, environment of, uh, you know, firefighters not feeling comfortable um, showing feelings or saying that things might be difficult. And so, yeah, even coming for help, Mm -hmm. they must feel so uncomfortable and yeah, it being a threat. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how, how is trauma defined or described in your book that would be, let's say more geared towards this population of first responders. Yeah. So in my book, um, I tried to find a concise, uh, not necessarily a definition, but a good explanation for this population because um, I wanted it to make sense in a way that had less to do with, you know, I mean, when people think of trauma, obviously childhood trauma, abuse, those types of things come to mind. But the work-related trauma, the exposure for first responders is really um, this the result of this overwhelming nervous system response to the threat, like on a call, and then later on to the perceived threat, which re- remembering the call or getting activated by something that triggers a memory of the call. So first responders are constantly exposed to critical incidents mm-hmm. um, that cause brain and body changes. And these changes occur when their nervous systems get activated. So I really wanted to highlight, you know, I think people even in, even in um, first responders will use the term trauma to describe like a brain injury or something that happens in an accident, something that's like a physical, you know, injury. But I wanted to make sure that there was this understanding that um, 
every time your nervous system is activated uh, to the point where it's overwhelmed, you could potentially start to develop signs or symptoms of being traumatized. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I got when I was reading it. I was like, this sounds a lot like the exact same process that happens with repetitive trauma in childhood. Yes. The brain of the, of the first responder is fully developed. So you don't have mm -hmm. the developmental piece, but being exposed, you know, over and over and over again to overwhelm, mm -hmm. it's the same process in the body. Yes. Yeah. yeah, the same mm -hmm. response. So, um, yeah, and 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 I like I said at the, when we started, I can relate because one of our best friends. I mean, the stories that he would share were horrific, like your mm -hmm. worst nightmares, and having to like you know, um, he's a paramedic, so he'd have to like he'd be the first one on there, and you know, you see a mother hysterical or whatever, and that's that's horrifying. And he was a young dad, uh, you know, at the time of this particular thing. And I'm thinking, how can that not, not affect you? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What are some of the, would you say some of the misconceptions about, about trauma, um, maybe in general and, and how, how it's treated? So I think a lot of people and myself included in my degree programs, I wasn't actually taught how to treat trauma uh, the way that I needed to be taught. Mm -hmm. So obviously I had to get, um, uh, you know, enhance my skill set, enhance my training. And I think there's this misconception that you can just go to any therapist, any coach, any um, mm -hmm. any doctor, any psychiatrist and say, I'm having work-related stress and help, and it's going to be the same. Um, so there's this misconception that that like talk therapy, for example, is is a valid treatment for trauma. Unfortunately, it's not it's not in and of itself. It's just the way it is. So cognitive treatments, um, I was actually trained um, psychodynamically. That was kind of the theoretical, you know, orientation that I was given in, in school doesn't do anything for trauma. So the cognitive and the kind of emotion focused treatments, they don't heal trauma because when we're traumatized, the neocortical functioning is, is shut down. Our rational thinking capacity is shut down. So to have someone in an office talk to you for an hour, um, and you trying to get them to change their thoughts or their way of thinking, it's pretty much useless as far as um, helping them. And so I think that's actually a deterrent for a lot of people like first responders. They don't want to come in and just talk. And the good news is, is that's not going to help anyway. So they don't have to. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of what I've experienced as the biggest, one of the biggest misconceptions is that people will come in and just assume I'm going to talk for an hour. You're going to give me some homework. And then all of a sudden these flashbacks or nightmares or whatever are just going to kind of go away. And and that's, that's just not the case. So. Yeah. And uh, as I was mentioning, when I had asked my friend once, would you ever be interested in coming on the podcast and talking? It's like, nope. So that was just an indication that, nope, not going to go there, which we understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, why would I want to touch into something that, that might be really painful to bring up again? So that's good to know that um, 
that they don't have to come in and talk about it. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's mm-hmm. good. So what impact would you say does trauma have on the body of a first responder or anybody or anyone who's really like, like a first responder that's exposed to a crisis? Well, I like that you said crisis um, because the first responders, when they're on duty, they're, they're always in crisis mode. And what crisis mode does is um, it, it takes our, our typical stress response, which is a good thing. And it, overwhelms it it makes it it pushes it over the threshold to an over arousal so with a first responders nervous system we can they can experience um the fight or flight which is the sympathetic dominance or they can experience something that's um less known actually to them i i I do a lot of education on this because a lot of people aren't aware that there's also a parasympathetic stress response which is the um and I know you've interviewed people on here about polyvagal theory, the, yeah, the, the door, the dorsal vagal shutdown. Mm-hmm. So it's actually your parasympathetic, your, your rest and digest system that's getting um, overwhelmed and it causes that freeze response. I've seen that. I've seen both of those occur in first responders. And, and what's kind of unique to them is that on switch is on, on duty so that they can do their job. And then it's on off duty. And that's, that's one of the main goals in 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 treating a first responder is how do I turn that on switch back to off when I'm in civilian mode, domestic mode, so that I can relate to my my family, I can you know relate to my kids, without um, bringing the trauma response into that environment. So I'm not I'm not going to say that that's 100% unique to first responders. I think anybody's who's traumatized their their switch is on. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's it's the same thing as uh, mm-hmm. someone who's, you know, they have that elevated response just to life in general. It's higher. And but I, I, I guess I didn't really realize that that same thing happens when you have work like that, where you're consistently in front of a crisis. But that makes sense if you're constantly in crisis mode, as many of us were in childhood. Mm-hmm. Um that the, you would continue to be hypervigilant, on edge, all of those right. things. Yeah. And it, what I've seen, what I've seen specific to first responders is they don't know that that's what's happening in them, and their inclination is they feel more comfortable at work. So this can be pretty problematic for um, families who misunderstand. They start to make the assumption that the the first responder wants to be at work more than with the family. They'll sign up for overtimes. What's actually happening is. Um, they feel more comfortable at work because they have a way to channel that energy that's taking that's that's overwhelming the system. Mm-hmm. Whereas when they're off duty, sitting down, you know, doing something kind of more of a domestic activity, mm-hmm. they're crawling out of their skin. They can't sit still, mm-hmm. and it feels like it makes more sense for them to have all of those stress hormones that are kind of coursing through their bloodstream to be uh, put to use on duty. Mm-hmm. So. That I would say is is sort of unique to um, anybody that's in a line of work where they they're doing crisis intervention or or dealing with critical incidents. Mm-hmm. Is it it start it can start to feel more comfortable being activated and hyper aroused um, to the point where leisure activities and off duty time is not very enjoyable. Mm. I can kind of see that too with some people in a, in a sense of just relating it to 
a lot of people who, who have had childhood trauma have difficulty um, being in peace or being in quiet. Yeah. It's sort of the same thing. They, yes. they don't feel safe in that space and they want to go do something. They want to go distract. They, they, it's, it's their body is just like, Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What impact does it actually have on the brain? Hmm. So trauma memories are not encoded in the brain the way that other memories are. Trauma memories essentially are trapped in the amygdala or the threat detector part of the brain in the limbic region, while other memories like, um, you know, maybe a memory of of doing this podcast, for example, mm -hmm. it's going to be encoded in a way where it's um, going to become a, a hippocampal memory. So we can recall it voluntarily. When we recall it, it's not going to give us any distress. And when we sleep tonight, we're, it's going to, our brain is going to do what it needs to do with it. It's going to store it, you know, into the long-term memory bank, essentially and archive it. Mm -hmm. Tra trauma memories don't get archived. They kind of, they stay in the inbox, so to speak. So they're always fighting to kind of get resolved. And that's what causes the, the flashbacks or the triggers, um, those types of occurrences, because they're actually still fresh in the emotional region of the brain. And that's why they become problematic is they come up on their own. They're not, we're not in control of when we recall them. And that's essentially, you know, how I would sort of try to, uh, describe the difference between a memory that gets in encoded as traumatic versus a memory that's just something that can easily get stored and resolve itself. If you'd like to find out more about trauma recovery coaching with me, you can visit my website at thehealingtraumapodcast.com. There you'll find a variety of ways that we could work together. So... I'm just wondering for one of the things that you mentioned in the book. And I, I said, I mean, we, I try to do the same thing with my own clients and, and here on the podcast. And I love the way you described how, when you work with someone and you begin to tell them and explain that what they're experiencing is not abnormal, but it's a really an adaption that uh, they feel great relief. Mm -hmm. So do you want to talk about that a bit? Sure. Um, that actually came from the fact that, uh, you know, in my diagnostic manual, mm -hmm. um, this tr post-traumatic stress or tra trauma is referred to as a disorder. I don't like that word. Um, one of the reasons is because the whole reason for that word in the first place is it's like a, it's like a linguistic convenience for people who are supposed to be reading that manual. It's not necessarily supposed to be shared uh, with the public or the client. Um, and it shouldn't be information that's public domain, even though, you know, with the internet nowadays, people are diagnosing themselves with all, all kinds of things. Um, it would be abnormal if somebody wasn't yeah. impacted by an adverse experience. So I wouldn't consider that a disorder. I would consider that, you know, adaptive. Um, mm -hmm. I think that brings a lot of relief to people because, you know, I, even myself, I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to go seek help and then be told that um, I'm mentally ill because I experienced something on the job, you know, where I was trying to help. And then 
and then the environmental stimuli was so overwhelming that um it's almost like you say you you it's like you're telling people you, you go to work you're going to catch an illness mm. um and so i don't really view it that way so i try to use different terminology that makes more sense um and doesn't involve this sort of harsh you know kind of labeling because I would think that if you weren't impacted by the things that you see as a first responder, that might be problematic, you know? And that's a relief. So how, so you tell me, take this a little further. How would it be problematic? I would question someone's capacity to experience <laughs> empathy. Yeah, um, I was thinking the same thing. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, and there are people out there who, who have that deficit yeah. um, and aren't phased by things that are, you know, considered the worst experiences for others. Exactly. exactly. Um, so. so what a relief. So what a relief yeah. you know, to know yeah. that, that it, that, and I, I love that how you went into depth about, you know, not being a disorder, such a relief. I mean, the, the environment, the, the experience, the horror, that was where the abnormal or the disorder, that was disorderly, not right. your response to it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's so much relief in that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that. So I don't know if you answered this question. I might be repeating myself, but how do first responders experience trauma specifically? Like mm -hmm. how does it show up? So we can actually become traumatized um, through any of our five senses. Mm -hmm. right? So each first responder um and I think this is specific to the individual, but I've worked with a lot of first responders who the worst thing that they remember is something that they heard. I've worked with first mm -hmm. responders who said the worst thing that they remember is something that they saw. I've, I've heard um, the worst thing that they experienced is something that they smelled, right? So I think what's unique to them um, is they're exposed and they're on calls all the time where they are exposed to all of this sensory stimuli. And so there's all of these different ways in which the trauma can enter into their system and activate the stress response, activate the nervous system. Not to say that that's not something that's common to everybody, but because they're, they can pretty much guarantee that there's going to be some sort of an environmental stimuli that's going to cue in a re a reaction and, um, and the, and the types of things. So if you're talking about a firefighter, um, like a wildland firefighter, for example, they smell smoke all the time. You know, they smell things burning. I don't remember the last time I smelled something burning. So there's certain environmental um, experiences that they have that are specific to them that they can guarantee they're going to have. And then depending on the individual, that sensory information can enter into their system and potentially cause uh, problems for for them later on. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you just described the fires and I was smelling it. So I can imagine, mm. I can imagine them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then what's, what's unique to them and their families? Like what's, yeah. I, I go over this a little bit in the book. I think it's very brief, but I talk about vicarious trauma. Yeah. Um, I haven't, I haven't yet worked with a first responder whose family wasn't impacted by vicari vicariously. So essentially, um, 
the traumatized person comes home to their attachment relationships and their attachment relationships are sort of if they're if they are traumatized the the attachment relationships are compromised because the social engagement you know has decreased or it's not it's not the the most um safe the most vulnerable and so um the family members are experiencing this new version this adapted you know version of their loved one in a way where it um basically alters the safety of the family system in lots of ways i mean it depends i know you've done you've done a lot of um you know a lot about childhood trauma so depending on the developmental stage the child's in um that can severely impact just being in close proximity to the traumatized person can severely impact the development of the child um the the relationship the marital relationship or partnership um can be severely compromised what i've noticed because first responders are taught to suck it up a lot of times um avoidant attachment becomes a, a pretty prominent aspect of the relationships coping in ways that aren't helpful that can also impact the family so if there's any sort of um you know maladaptive coping whether it's you know self-medicating or or keeping busy or whatever um that can also impact the family system as a whole so those are just a few kind of examples of how the family's impacted i know you said you give a lot of education psychoeducation which is super helpful but what is your what is the modality that you use with them for trauma to process some of the trauma yeah so something that's really popular and i know it's been discussed on your podcast before and probably will be again yeah um but emdr is a very popular uh treatment technique for first responders because a lot of the first responders are coming in um with either um like a single incident trauma like maybe one particular call that they just really struggled with or um a cumulative trauma that is thematic though so it's like a lot of calls of, of the same nature where it's sort of created a theme and those two types of traumas can be really kind of targeted and successfully treated with EMDR. So that's typically my go-to for when I'm working with first responders. Another reason is because it's typically short-term in nature when you're dealing with um, like a work-related trauma. Um, it's different with childhood trauma or complex, you know, trauma. It essentially is a short-term way to kind of unlock those trauma memories we were discussing earlier and kind of consolidate them and put them where they need to be so that the person can just get back to work, essentially. So a lot of my work that I do is somebody's coming in just because there's a particular call or a particular event that they want to specifically target, and EMDR really does wonders for that type of uh, situation. And you've seen, like, maybe you can talk about without giving names. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that we can get in a, a little idea maybe of of someone who came to see you and and some where they had some relief. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be completely honest. When I first heard about EMDR, I, I, I didn't know what to think. I didn't really believe something like that could be so effective mm. <laughs> um, until I saw it for myself. Um, 
And I've worked with, I've worked with first responders who've come in, you know, just two or for two or three sessions. And, um, as long as they agreed to, you know, be vulnerable, kind of give themselves permission to heal, to do the process, to take directives and, um, follow the protocol, so to speak, uh, they at least reported to me that they had a distress level of like a 10 when they came to see me. And then after our processing, they had a distress level of zero and they could, they could recall the memory of the event of the call and with zero distress. Um, That's incredible. That's so great to hear. And it's so rewarding to, to see and to, and to experience when someone comes in and, and, part of the EMDR process is we actually do, we vet that we, we see, you know, did this really work? Did this really stick? So I intentionally will try to activate them, um, with their permission, of course. (laughs) And they, and to see that that there's a no physiological response, um, to what a week or two before was so distressing and they could barely, you know, verbalize. It's incredible. Wow. Yeah. And so they bring up the memory and then you do the bilateral stimulation with them while they're yes. talking about it. So they typically will, will pick, will pick a, a memory, an mm-hmm. event, um, and then we'll target the worst part of it. Mm-hmm. So I'll have them kind of go to the worst part. Um, typically there's a, a belief about themselves associated with that. So we try to identify the belief. Then we choose a more positive or adaptive belief that they would want to link to the memory instead of the negative one. Um, We label the emotion associated with it, where it's felt in the body and the distress level on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being the worst. Um, And then we have them uh, basically focus, like roll that all up, you know, into a ball, hold on to it, intentionally focus on that so that the system gets activated the way it was originally. And then we run the bilateral stimulation and um, essentially they just say whatever came to mind during the bilateral uh, technique. And then we basically do that until they start to have more clarity, more like the, the thinking brain gets back online. There's links, associations to the to the trauma where it was originally fragmented. Now it's more coherent. It's more clear. And then they just start having the ability to, to create a new narrative about it until the new belief is actually believable. And in doing that, it reduces the distress level to the point where they can now intentionally try to, to look at the memory and there, it just, it's lacking that Charge. intensity the charge great oh. word it, it lacks the charge mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. that's really really great so is there anything unique about being like anything else you want to say uh, that's unique about being a first responder and trauma that you think is important to share i think i think when we talk about I mean, it's really, it's really been a problem, this, uh, this suck it up mentality. Yeah. And it's been a problem from their soup, from supervisors in first responder world. Like if you need to take time off for work-related stress, like you might as well just, you know, hang it up and quit because you can't handle it. And 
that has proven to be extremely dangerous. Um, not only dangerous, but life-threatening. You know, suicide rates are high um, for first responders. Um, substance use, self-medicating in ways that are really damaging. And I, I'm not going to be placing blame on anybody, but I would say if if there there was an openness and a vulnerability to um, admitting like, hey, our nervous systems are shot and we can't really, there's nothing we can do. That's just part of the human condition that has nothing to do with, you know, being tough. Mm -hmm. um, that can prevent, literally prevent um, tragedies from happening. So I think um, slowly but surely, I think there's more, a bit more of an openness to seeking help now it's 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 less of a stigma but it's still there and um whereas somebody in a different profession who doesn't necessarily have a a reputation to uphold if they're having problems they'll go seek help because they just want to feel better you know there's no there's no um obstacle so they i would say what's unique is somebody who's told their whole life that they're just supposed to figure out a way to deal and they're supposed to somehow have superhuman powers to do that. Um, I think that is something that's unique in the first responder community that needs to kind of be, we need to start kind of chipping away at that stigma. I, I'm thinking like before that there needs to be trauma informed education given to first responders supervisors, all of them. So mm -hmm. that first of all, they know that this is like, this is to be expected. You're going to be facing experiences that are going to be overwhelming for your system. This is normal. Yes. Like, you know, and that you may need some support after. Yeah, absolutely. And I think now, um, professional resilience training, prior to even being exposed to the traumas that they're going to, I think it would be a good idea to teach people, you know, how, how to self-regulate, you know, how to interrupt threat responses, how to do things that while they're on duty, um, you know, you don't, you don't have to be hyper-vigilant. You can be self-regulated and cautious, right? I mean, there's a difference. Mm -hmm. So teaching them those ways of being in tune with themselves, with their bodies, um, where they're regulating while they're in, in the danger, interrupting the threat response before it, you know, becomes toxic stress and kind of, you know, has a mind of its own, becomes more of an automatic process. Yeah. I think we can do a lot to educate first responders in, in that regard. This just popped into my mind now, and I'm thinking about, um, now a lot of people have had childhood trauma, and if they then choose a career like that. I mean, I'm thinking they're going to be having to do a lot of, um, a lot, they're going to need a lot of support. Yeah. So childhood trauma, um, prior to a, a job like this significantly increases the likelihood of, um, kind of more poor coping strategies. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the ACE scale, the adverse childhood experiences, just scoring a one out of 10 on that. And then going into a, into a work like this, um, 
significantly increases difficulties when dealing with stress. I mean, yeah. So. Well, thank you for a very uh, interesting conversation. And, um, you know, I hope people will share it if they uh, know someone who's a first responder. It could be really, really helpful for them and their families. So thank you. And thank you for the work that you do. If people are interested in your book or in your resources, I will link uh, your book to the show notes and your website as well. It was a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me.